Andy Ratcliffe talked me into starting a venture firm. And uh, I thought, are you kidding me? The world doesn't need another venture firm. But I had these ideas for why I thought the world did need a venture firm that was different. We wrote down everything. What would you do differently? It was where the money would come from, the composition of the team, how we would engage with founders. I took it to the best limited partners, people that invest in venture firms. And they said, yes, you know, how much money can we give you? And um, I said, is it because of the success I've had or because of the ideas? And they said, both, we'll be honest, it's both. Um, but they were very, very, you know, much believers in the mission. And it was awesome. You know, we went and got, we did things people had never done. We got money from Spellman and Morehouse and Hampton, HBCUs, no one ever done that before. And we said to hell with that. We're gonna, we'll show them it's different. 60% of our team is women. I think diverse teams make better decisions. Like I believe that. So we have to kick everyone's ass. I'll be really clear. Like otherwise people will say it's a, it's, no, that was cute, John. Um, so we're here to win by, by, you know, no mistake about it. Um, but we're just doing it in an unusual way. We doing out there folks this is your host with the most kenny vaughn the director of breakline apex i'm here with two of my favorite ladies hello kenny vaughn and soap this is bethany coates from team breakline what is up everybody it is sophia another team member here at breakline and y'all we just wrapped up an amazing conversation Oh my goodness. Can, can we talk about John Veronis for a second? Can Let's we just do talk it. about this, brother? Bethany, you've known John for some time now. Can you just share like on a personal level, like what he is like, the type of human being that he is? Well, I love John Veronis and I love his whole family. Um, we were lucky to, to be family friends and, and have been for years. And he is so understated. He, you know, you have to kind of pull those accomplishments out of him. And, and that's a theme that runs through his, his life and his friendships and the way that he carries himself. But the other thing that I think is remarkable about him is that he thinks so deeply about relationships and friendships mm. to the point that it actually um, gave him the insight for a very different way to build a venture capital firm. He was in this industry for at least 12 years before he built Unusual Ventures. And in creating his own firm, he really put his stamp on it in a way that's new and fresh and really value added for the entrepreneurs that he works with. That same level of understatement, Kenny, that he had with his academic background and, you know, he called himself an average athlete. Meanwhile, he was a professional <laughs> athlete. Um, he, he, he has that, that same humility with respect to his investing record. But let's be honest, this is somebody who's backed 20 unicorns. So John Frionis certainly knows what he's doing and, um, and has, has had an incredible impact in, in the space and, and on the companies that he's worked with. So there is a little bit of a spoiler alert. The origin story of Pinterest is in this conversation. So <laughs> if you want to tune in to hear about that, it's a fascinating story. Sophia, what did you take away from this conversation? I mean, I I could have listened to John chat all night. Um, this man is humble. One of the one of the last things that he shared. So you got to listen to this whole episode to get to it. Um, he was talking about how one of the the pieces of advice that he shares with um, the founders that he works with is that you know your superpower isn't 
going to be what is going to make you successful, but rather your humanity, the way mm-hmm. that you build relationships really authentically with people. Mm-hmm. They are going to know if, um, if you're BSing them, if you're being legit, if you are authentic, if you're real with them, then folks are going to want to support you and mm-hmm. you're going to ultimately make better decisions. So there were a lot of key takeaways that I hope that our listeners are going to get, going to walk away with tonight. But that was something that struck me definitely. So the last thing I just want to add, because I would be remiss as the director of Breakline Apex if I, if I did not share this, is not only the thought leadership that John has brought to this space, but like the commitment that he has brought to diversity mm. and diversifying the industry. For those of you all who don't, who don't know, um, John and his team at Unusual Ventures were founding sponsors of our Apex Vertical. Yep. They are committed to this space. They have committed budget. They have committed dollars. And... You know, it's one thing to talk the talk. It's something completely different to walk it. And as you listen to this conversation, John is the type of person who goes towards the challenge, right? Like, this is just a theme that you hear time and time and throughout this conversation is like, he is the person that is going to run towards the hard thing and he's going to do be hard part things. of the solution. He's going to do hard things. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to see it manifest not only in his portfolio, but in his life as a father of three beautiful daughters and his relationships, um, it's just something that permeates every aspect of life. And I'm so excited that we get a chance to share this wisdom, these insights with our community. So I don't know about y'all ladies, uh, but it might be that time we got to go on and dive up in this thing. What y'all think about that? I think it's time. I think we should go for it. I hope you all enjoy. We will see you guys in the Breakline Arena. See you there. Welcome, everybody. I love seeing all of you here. It's so much fun to have the time together. It's such a pleasure to welcome John Vrionis here. John um, and I have been friends for years. This is now a multi-generational family friendship. Our daughters, we're both, um, we both have families of daughters and our daughters are very close friends as well. So it's been really fun to get to know the Briones family and to welcome John here today. John, thank you for joining us. Oh, Bethany, I'm so glad to see you. And I'm delighted that you would ask me to do something like this. Well, we love having you back. You've joined us in the past and it's such a treat to have you here. And um, we're going to explore a whole bunch of different themes from John's life and career. But I just want to sort of level set with our audience today, John. And actually share a bit of your background with them as well. Can you talk to us from a personal lens? Let us let us in a little bit on your life. Give us a peek behind the scenes and uh, some of the steps along the way to where you are today. Okay, I'll give you the 30-second the version and we can go into whatever, <laughs> whatever uh, element you want. I mean, uh, the most important thing is I do have three daughters, uh, five, eight, and 10. Um, and, uh, and we live here in Menlo Park, California. Um, starting at the beginning, I, uh, I'm a hillbilly from kind of rural Georgia. Uh, my mom was a math teacher and my dad was, uh, quite an athlete, uh, college athlete and then drafted to play professional football. Uh, he didn't end up doing that. He was in the service and went to Vietnam, but, um, my parents like to joke that they, they got a kid who was good at standardized tests and average at sports. So, um, I ended up going to Harvard, uh, to play soccer and uh, played for a few years after college professionally in MLS and in England. I wasn't good enough to uh, make a life of that. So I ended up 
moving back to the US, uh, I got a master's degree in computer science and uh, then ended up working for a startup out in uh, California, in Silicon Valley. Uh, went to Stanford for business school and uh, stumbled my way into a venture capital job. Uh, that was almost 16 years ago. And I, I worked at a, a firm called Lightspeed, uh, which is now a fairly global firm, India, China, Israel, uh, for almost 12 years. And then uh, about three and a half years ago now, uh, I started a firm with a founder that I had worked closely with uh, called Unusual Ventures. And uh, we are you know, 25 people now and invest mostly in really early stage uh, consumer and enterprise technology companies. Okay, fabulous. And um, people are already laughing at how humble you are. You referred to yourself as average at sports and yet you were a professional athlete. <laughs> so we are calling you out immediately, John Briones. Um, John, can you, before we jump into unusual and, and sort of the path through light speed to unusual, can you just give us sort of the one to two minute on what venture capital is? What, what, does, what do venture capitalists do? Why is it important? How, is it, how has it become the engine behind um, so many of the most famous companies in the world today? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating industry for those of you who are uh, at all nerdy about studying uh, things like this. There's some really cool books, and, you know, Money of Invention. Uh, another book came out last year, just VC History. You can, you can pick it up on Amazon pretty easy. But, it, you know, the industry is about 50 years old now. It, it actually started uh, when the government, U.S. government, uh, had a bunch of technology that people thought could be commercialized for private use. And this is back in the late 60s. And, and so some, some pioneering, you know, now famous venture capitalists like Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia or founders of Kleiner Perkins, uh, they started investing in entrepreneurs to take that technology and make it available to you know, private citizens, the mass market. And, you know, the industry has just exploded over the last four or five decades um, because well, there's a massive market for that. And it's really become essentially the growth engine for not just our economy in the US, but you know, many other uh, economies. Uh, and so the, the industry venture capital went from kind of a cottage thing to now there are probably, I don't know, somewhere on the order of five or 600 firms out there uh, that invest private money, uh, usually not their own. Uh, they get the money from endowments or wealthy families or sovereign nations. Uh, we can talk all about that if that's interesting, where it comes from. And then it's invested in entrepreneurs, private companies in exchange for a percentage ownership in the company. Uh, and then startups are funded this way uh, all along their, you know, their progressive journey. You know? And so most people fund their companies in 24 month increments, meaning you raise about the amount of money you need to achieve the goals you want for two years, raise more money, fight on, you know, at unusual, we call it survive in advance. It's a little like the NCAA tournament. Uh, and, and there's specialists now, you know, it's, it's uh, an industry where there's firms that invest in healthcare only or enterprise software or consumer technology. Uh, there's firms that invest only in the US or only China, only India, only Israel, uh, only Europe. Uh, there's firms that do all of that. <laughs> Um, so it's become a, you know, a gladiator ring in a good way. Uh, it's sort of the epitome, in my opinion, of um, 
you know, free markets and capitalism uh, at its purest. Thank you, John. And I want to get into um, unusual and the model that you and your co-founder put in place and that you're you're pursuing now. But before we get there, I just want to um, talk a little bit about the decision making behind striking out on your own. So if we go back, you were at Lightspeed for, I think, 12 years. John would never tell you this. He's like consistently on the Midas list of the top tech investors in the world. He, um, you know, he's highly sought after as an investor, as a board member, everyone wants to have access to him. And you sort of built this first phase of your career at Lightspeed, which is a really fancy venture capital firm on Sand Hill, sort of at the center of the industry. Um, so you, you sort of like made it to the top, like you worked your butt off, you achieved what you wanted to achieve. And then you kind of made it to the top of the mountain and, and you had an epiphany. And can you share with us a little bit um, about that experience and how you felt and, and what you decided to do next? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, um, I think the easiest way to explain that is to give you a little context on, you know, more of my past, not, not that it was special by any means, but I, so my dad got MS when I was a kid, my mom ended up raising my sisters and me, um, and, you know, we, we didn't have much. It was, you know, she's a high school teacher. Uh, you know, I, part of my, my journey, my, my hope was to not have her worry about me. So I think I tried hard in sports and in school to, I don't know, give her a little joy and have her think she didn't have to pay for college and after that sort of thing. So I, I don't know, you know, when I got to Harvard, I was, I felt like a fish out of water, you know, or at least a big fish, small pond, all of a sudden these kids are way more prepared than me. And I, you know, I just, but I, you, you have a choice, right? You can quit or you can fight. And, uh, you know, I decided to fight and, uh, you, you, it served me well, right? You, you just, you, you grind, you find a way. And, you know, somewhere along the way, someone told me venture capital was like the hardest job and you can make the most money and you got to work with entrepreneurs and that all sounded great. <laughs> um, and so I, I guess I continued to fight, you know, I found a way to succeed in the job. And, you know, I, I woke up one day kind of in my mid 30s. And I had, you know, more zeros in my bank account than I ever thought I'd have. And, um, and I was miserable. I, I, I was miserable. Uh, I don't know how else to tell you that. Um, I, you know, I got to the top of this mountain, I had been working so, so hard and so long for and it just it wasn't anything that I thought it would be. I, the people I was with, I, I didn't, I wasn't proud to call partners. The, the, you know, the relationships I had with founders felt very transactional, if that makes sense. Um, in any way, sometimes I think in life we have these ambitions and we mean well, but then you, you kind of, you, you get there, you get, you get to see under the tent and it's not, not everything it was cracked up to be. So I just had to take a hard look at like, okay, what is success for me? What, what, what is important to me? And you know, I, I had just had one, my first child at that point, And I was like, well, who do I want them to say that I was? I mean, my, my dad, I, he was sort of gone at, when he was 41. So I, I didn't take it for granted, right? Every, every day is a gift, right? There's two, there's two kinds of people, right? I, you know, I, I deserve this life. I'm owed something. And there's, I don't deserve any of this. Like, I, I, this is, everything is a gift. And so I, I just, I decided I wanted to stop looking at life like a series of hoops or gates that I had to get through. And I had done that at Harvard and Stanford and venture capital, but, and instead sort of say, Hey, you know, maybe the challenge is 
that I face every day. It's my job to do my best. And, you know, I'm a faithful guy, like God has a plan for me. And my job is to do my best. And I'm, I'm being shaped to be something that maybe I, maybe I didn't realize. Um, so I think a lot of, a lot of times we underestimate how much work affects who we are, who you work with has a big influence on who you are. And I just decided I had, I, I had a choice, you know, I, I had to make a change and people thought I was crazy. Um, you know, I, I walked away from a lot, a lot of money, um, by any, any standard. And, but at the same time, it's like the cost of me staying was just too high. So I did a lot of soul searching. I thought about being a soccer coach or a professor. I thought about, um, being a deacon. I was raised in a Catholic, a Christian house and my wife laughed at me at all those things and was like, you just tell people to get off their butt and work harder. Like you, you like working with founders. You just don't like the situation you're in. So um, why don't you do something about it? And I was like, well, what is that? You know, should I join another venture firm? It's like, well, they're all kind of the same, you know, a bunch of white guys making too much money, doing well, they don't want to change anything. You know, when things are working at companies, nobody wants to mess it up. So they're reluctant to kind of make big changes. So Anyway, long story short, we'll get into a mentor of mine, Andy Ratcliffe, who, you know, Bethany, maybe some of you know, is the founder of Benchmark. He talked me into starting a venture firm. And uh, I thought, are you kidding me? That's way too much work. I'm, I don't, I don't want to do that. The world doesn't need another venture firm. But I had these ideas for why I thought the world did need a venture firm that was different. And, uh, you know, we sort of did, we call it the magic wand exercise. We wrote down everything. What would you do differently? was where the money would come from, the composition of the team, how we would engage with founders. And I wrote it all down and I took it to the, you know, the quote unquote best LPs, limited partners, people that invest in venture firms, you know, Harvard and Stanford and Lucille Packard and things like that. And, and they said, yes, you know, how much money can we give you? And um, I said, is it because of the success I've had or because of the ideas? And they said, both, we'll be honest, it's both. Um, but they were very, very, you know, much believers in the mission and it was awesome. You know, we went and got, we did things people had never done. We got money from Spellman and Morehouse and Hampton, HBCUs. No one ever done that before No one ever, because they're not big or they take too long or they don't get it. And we said to hell with that. We're going to, we'll show them it's different. Um, half the team is women, actually 60% of our team is women. Um, not because I have three daughters and some ax to grind. I think diverse teams make better decisions. Like I believe that. So we have to kick everyone's ass. I'll be really clear. Like, otherwise people will say it's, a, it's no, that was cute, John. Um, so we're here to make the most money. We're here to win by, by you know, no mistake about it. Um, but we're just doing it in an unusual way. Oh my God, I freaking love this story. I'm getting so fired up. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so John leaves just the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. He gets to the end of the rainbow. He's got the pot of gold and he says, I don't want this. This is not what I expected it to be. It's not what I cracked. It, I thought it was cracked up to be. I want to be proud of who I am. And um, and John, when John has told the story in the past, John, you said um, that what you realized was important to you was relationships. And you sort of alluded to that when you said, I, I wasn't proud of the people that I was surrounded by. Um, and I would love for you now to talk to us about unusual. And, um, and I want to preface this by saying 
that when Kenny Vaughn and I were building the Breakline Apex Vertical together with our team, we went to John and to the Unusual Ventures team and said, will you be a founding sponsor? And it took him about a hot second to say yes. And so we're really, really grateful to, um, to be partnering with John, Chris, his teammate, John Volk, Ray, um, and other members of that team. So they, they directly support the work that we do. So we're very grateful. But it's also because there's an intersection with how John is building his firm and it is different. Um, and so John, I'd love for you to tell us more about Unusual and the gap in, in the sector that you saw and, and how you all are seeking to fill it. Yeah, well, for, I mean, first, I'm so proud, frankly, to be a sponsor at all and that you would ask me. I think what you guys are building is just, it's a light in the world and I'm happy to be supportive in any way I can. Uh, and I, you know, you know, I mean that I, you know, I, on the relationships thing, yeah, and it's, it's central to unusual. And let me just explain, you know, I, when I was going through that sort of soul searching, like, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I sort of phase? I, I had um, someone had given me this book. It's, 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 it's probably too big to read the whole damn thing, but it's uh, Ray Dalio. It was like a famous hedge fund manager, and it, he just—it's called Principles. And so, throughout the book, you can actually follow him on LinkedIn. He sort of publishes these things all the time, in like big red letters across both pages. Uh, it said, "Ask yourself this que these questions. You know, what do you want? What do you know to be true? And what are you going to do about it? So, what do you want? What do you know to be true?" And what are you going to do about it? I, I would just take an hour sometime, go for a walk or run, whatever you do. And just like, ask those questions of yourself. What do you want? What do you know to be true? What are you going to do about it? And so I, my wife and I sat down, I was like, what do I want? And, and it, it took a while, you know, to kind of articulate it in a crisp way. But it, it was like, I want, I want good relationships, really strong relationships. I want them with her, you know, with my children, for me, with God with the people I work with, I, like that, what do I know to be true? I know that's a life well lived, right? You know, being of service of others has always been the thing that's been beat into me. Like that, that is, you know, that's where we get joy. Joy is something that stays, right? Happiness is like a good meal, a new clothes, new, new car, joy, joy lasts. Like, where do you get joy? It's like helping others, really. And so the relationships and being, being of service, like I knew that, I knew that was true. So what, what was I going to do about it? So part of the unusual model is I found that the, the way investors tend to engage with founders, I said it earlier, uh, transactional. Like you, you give someone money, you, they have goals, they either hit them or they don't. You would show up every six, eight weeks at a board meeting. That's kind of how these engagements, you know, relationships are structured. And the problem was that like most venture firms, most investors were set up in a way where they would, we call it spray and pray tongue-in-cheek but it's they would make a large volume of investment imagine you and some of you might have you know i'm not asking you to raise hands played roulette you, you might have been to, to a gambling facility and tested there's a couple ways to invest you could put a you know a chip on every number and spin the wheel and that's how a lot of investors think about startup investing they, they make a lot of a high volume and they don't really spend time with any founders and then they see which ones start to work and they double down and they triple down and they quadruple down but they never really know the people and they don't really spend time helping the people through those difficult obstacles that every founder faces at the beginning. So I said, let's, why, let's, why, why does it have to be that way? Let's do it totally differently. And so we, 
we ended up having a model where we have far more operators, we call them, people with a lot of startup experience in the areas that founders struggle with the most. And so the founders we typically invest in, we call them product visionaries. That's our prototype founder. They have an insight about an idea about why a product that just it should exist. Like they can't sleep almost. It should exist. And yet it doesn't. And there's people finding other hacks and struggling with some, whatever else is out there. And, and yet that's not enough to build a company, right? There's so much us else that's required in execution, you know, hiring well, you know, marketing your message in a way that's empathetic, right? That the customer cares about. Sales isn't something we come out of the womb knowing how to do. There's actually a process and like a, a best practice, you know, there's ways to do it well. Um, a lot of companies today, they have communities. How do you manage? How do you build a community? Uh, in the pandemic, we learned the hard way. Most people don't like to be sold to, but they sure like to learn stuff. So if you produce content that people, it allows them to learn, you earn the right to sell them stuff. Well, all of this is like, these are how good startups get built with all of these functions. And so we decided to hire the best people we knew in each of those areas in Silicon Valley and beyond. And they're part of the unusual team. And so we don't make many investments, but when we do, we surround our founders with these kinds of experts who don't just give advice. That, that's probably the single biggest difference between like, we don't, you know, a lot of firms, oh, we have a network, we have money, we give you advice. Okay, what's the next step? We do it, we do it alongside of you. We write the website copy. We close the first 10 accounts. We'll hire your first 15 engineers. Like, we do all of that with you to get the company to what we call early signs of success or product market fit is the lexicon they use in venture capital. Um, and then they're ready to raise more money. Remember, survive in advance, survive in advance. So we get the company to early signs of success and traction, and then they're ready to raise more money. But we do it in this very hands-on way. And we're in, we're literally in the building usually, you know, not this year, but with the founders helping them put this stuff together. Okay, this is this is so interesting to me, and, and you know, and as a founder, and together with our early team, and we have a bunch of the Breakline team members on the call. I think we can all see the tremendous value in um, in this approach, and um, I, I want to get into the relationship that you have with your co-founder. You know, you talked about surrounding your teams with operators. Your co-founder is um, is a is an incredible entrepreneur himself, and. Um, the like the overlay to this though is the depth of the relationships that you have in your life and how thoughtful you've been like it doesn't surprise me that you make this commitment up front to the entrepreneurs that you work with in in such a distinctive way for the venture capital sector like you're right most firms don't operate that way but you all make that commitment and i kind of want to like i want to share with the the audience here starting with like the one of the most foundational relationships in your life which is the one with your wife Jen who John and I talk about this almost every time we chat Jen I think is the nicest person I've ever met and that is saying something because my husband is like the second nicest person I've ever met she's just she is like an angel she's so kind but then you also I mean you have uh, Bethany so you'd have to be an angel to marry me so yes <laughs> that, that, that's that's absolutely right but, and you all have such a happy marriage, but you also have really long, durable, deep relationships with other people. Um, Don Fall, who's spoken with our audience, Andy Ratcliffe, who we've mentioned, like you've known those guys for decades at this point. Sorry to date you, but it's true. Um, 
And so that's kind of the overlay here. Like this is someone who invests deeply in other people. And can you talk to us about the, the relationship that you've developed with your co-founder, Jyoti uh, Bansal, and, and how you all approached that, um, that, that co-founding partnership and, and how it's sort of unfolded over time? Yeah, I mean, that's a really thoughtful question. I, uh, so when you start anything new, you need to think really long and hard about who you're doing it with. Um, and as a professional investor, right, I, I have the, you know, the fortunate observation deck experience of a lot of founder relationships gone wrong. So I was probably even more sensitive to that than, than maybe the average person. Um, you know, so when I, when I said, okay, let's do this thing unusual, there were probably three people on the planet that I felt close enough to comfortable enough that I would, you know, say, Hey, why don't we do this together? Um, so Don is one of them. So you, it's interesting that you guys all met Don. Don was my roommate at Stanford and, uh, don't, don't listen to anything he says about me, but other than that, he, you know, he's just, he's like, he's Captain America. Like, you know, he's the, he's like that guy, but you trust him with your life, you know? Um, but he, he was, he was busy at the time. That wasn't going to happen. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite get him out of his, you know, I couldn't, I was an investor in his company. So it would have been weird to, to rip him out of the job. So that, that didn't work. Uh, and then there was my co-founder, Jyoti Bonzel. And for those of you who don't know anything about Jody, I would just, just spend five minutes. He'll be the Elon Musk of enterprise software. Like, I, I promise you that. The guy is from a very small town in India called Rajasthan. Um, yeah, well, there's a, there's a, it's more, he's from a small part in Rajasthan, to be, to be accurate. And he's just, you know, he sold his first company for almost $4 billion that I was fortunate enough to be an investor in. He started two more. He's my co-founder. He's superhuman. He's like in multiple places at the same time, I swear. Uh, but he, 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 he couldn't be more humble. Like as brilliant as he is, he is just the kindest soul. And so, you know, the best advice I got about, you know, hiring anybody is hire people you'd work for. And I'm generally unemployable. So that's pretty hard to, to, to think about that. But like, I would work for Jody in a heartbeat. Like he, I trust his judgment, his intellect, his integrity. Um, and he compliments me really well. You know, he, we're, he's the consummate engineer, you know, pretty soft-spoken, just, you know, very neat, <laughs> has a designer's eye. Like I'm, I'm a bit of a mess in a whirlwind. Uh, so, you know, he's the operator, he's the founder, he's the, he's the, he's the other the ying to my yang. Like I'm the investor, he's the operator. And we're, we're, when we pitch founders on like, why us? you get both of us. And that's kind of how we, that's kind of how we approach it. Um, it. Very much a team sport. Whereas most venture and investing firms, it's you, you sort of primarily deal with 99, 99% of the time, one person. And so we wanted to break that model. Um, so he and I just have this like very trusting, like when he says something, I listen, you know, uh, you know, the way we, the way we, when we wrote down kind of like the basics, we, it's like on one page. It's like you argue like you're right, you listen like you're wrong. Argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong, right? That's, and everyone we hire, we want to be proud of. Not just their abilities, but like that person represents who we are when they leave the building. 
So anyone I wanted to hire, I was like, I, I, you know, I want to just be, not just be proud of their investment capability, but like who they are and no compromises. And he feels exactly the same way. So, you know, I, I love doing the work with the, you know, the Navy SEALs, right? They, they love to say values and culture isn't what you preach. It's what you tolerate. And I think a lot of times investment firms forget that they, they take good investment decisions and performance and they'll overlook maybe bad behavior. And, uh, we, we just have no room for that here. So I needed a co-founder who I trusted was complimentary and shared the same value system. And despite being from two opposite ends of the earth, Jody would tell you he can't walk and chew gum. He thinks I'm sporty. Um, but, but we, we're, we're very much, you know, a good partner to one another. Um, I love that. And and I, I want to get into some of the specifics of how you and Jody partner and, and the value that you're providing to your entrepreneurs. I want to go a level deeper there. But you can all see the cross over um, John's shoulder. And a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, values and ethics and making sure that you're aligned as a team on values and ethics. And um, you referred to your relationship with God. Is there... Um, Anything that you want to share with respect to, you know, the intersection of your faith and work um, or, or not? Uh, yeah, I don't mind if that's interesting to people. I, I think, I think sometimes people are surprised or like, well, how do you reconcile the two? I'm like, I don't need to, they, they, they're perfectly aligned. <laughs> Be a good person, you know, do unto others. H how is that bad business? <laughs> you know, tell the truth. You know, you know, be vulnerable, uh, you know, do hard things, right? Like be not afraid, you know, all the things that I, I learn and believe as a, as a Christian, I, I tell entrepreneurs, right? Like, and sometimes people, yeah, and I'm guilty of this too. We all are right. Like we avoid the struggle. It's like, oh, I get it. I want to do hard things. Just not that hard thing. <laughs> like, no, that's what makes us strong, right? Like affliction makes us strong. Struggle makes us strong, builds character, right? You, you should put yourself in uncomfortable places. It's what I tell founders all the time. You got to keep learning and growing and you don't get to quit. You know, one of my favorite St. John, you know, Pope John Paul II, it's like, did Christ come down from the cross? No, no, you don't get to quit because it's hard. Like, you know, we all have our crosses to carry. We have our work to do, our parts to play, but I think we're meant to work hard and struggle and, you know, I, you know, I tend, I just believe there's, there's life beyond this one and every day is a gift. So, you know, it took me a long time to get there. I wasn't, I didn't start there, but I think, you know, my, my faith is what, you know, I have this, I'll show it to you. I don't know where, oh, here it is. I look at this all the time. I don't know if you, some of you may know the Bible story of when, Peter gets nervous and he reaches out to Jesus. He's walking on the water and then he gets nervous and he starts to sink. And Jesus is like, I have faith, have faith. And it's like, I mean, sometimes, you know, as a founder in the same day, I freak out. <laughs> Stuff goes wrong. Like, oh, you know, it's like, you got to have faith. You got to have faith, right? And it's, it's all going to work out. It has, it has so far, right? And so why wouldn't it otherwise? Uh, Love that. Thank you, John. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so now I want to I want to get into the unusual model in in more specific terms, and we're getting a bunch of questions in the chat as well. So we'll we'll turn it over to the audience in just a few minutes here. So go ahead and and pop your questions in there. But um, you've talked about the the sort of infrastructure that you put around your founders and around those founding teams and the ability to arm them with knowledge and tools to be successful. And you do this through the Unusual Academy. Will you talk about some of those core tenets or core lessons that, that you're trying to um, deploy and instill in those teams as they build their companies? Yep. yep. So I would divide them into two areas. And this is just over 20 years of seeing what successful companies and founders do and what companies that oh, I wish they had, but they hit you know, blockers that cause the, cause the mission to fail. Um, and the two buckets are uh, what I would call tactical execution in core areas. So we try to teach people by doing alongside of them some of the key things I mentioned before, right? Like most founders love to talk about their products and all its benefits. Turns out customers don't really want to hear that. People want to hear what's in it for me and they want to start there. So you really have to help people flip it upside down and, and explain their value of break line or whatever product you have from the outside in, right? Empathetically, that's a process. So we have to teach people that. Um, selling as a founder, the number one reason I see startups fail isn't because they didn't talk to enough people. It's because they didn't want to hear the bad news. <laughs> There's a funny, funny book called The Mom Test for any of you aspiring entrepreneurs. And the guy writes a whole funny book about how he started a company and it failed and he was so pissed because his mom lied to me. <laughs> He's like, my mom lied to me. She told me it was a great, she didn't know how to tell him no, like that it wasn't a really, it was a cookbook for the iPad. And, and anyway, the point is like most founders have happy ears. You want to believe so desperately that what you've built is a great fit for everyone you're talking to. And it's just not true. <laughs> so you have to have this like ruthless objectivity, right? Like. I joke that you know, sales good salespeople smell the money. They're like water and gravity. They just find, and you and founders struggle with that. So we have to teach them this, you know, how to hire, how to compensate, how to do performance management. It, you don't just know this stuff. So we 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 spend a lot of time in our academy in these very hands-on workshops trying to teach founders from the best. And we have the we stole it from how they teach pilots or surgeons. Uh, see one, do one, teach one. So, so the model we call the unusual method is you see one from an expert. They take you through their real life experience. You then have to you know, basically perform or do, do an exercise where you, with your company, take the process you just came to understand and now apply it. And then you have to get up and you have to teach it to your cohort. And you know, everyone here, think about it. When you have to teach something to someone, it's pretty, you know, people's BS detector goes off real quick if you don't, if you don't know your stuff. So that, that's how we've learned to help, you know, founders, this, these tactical elements, have them sink in. And then the second thing, which is, I think, unfortunately not addressed enough, which we do spend a lot of time on, is just the mental health and the leadership burden that founders take on, right? Like everyone thinks, oh, it's, you know, I know what I'm getting into. No way. No, I didn't, no way. It's, it's like you wake up staring at the ceiling sweating a lot and you think you know how to deal with stress or manage chaotic environments. You know, for the vets out there, yeah, you do, but most people don't. And uh, so we spent a lot of time that was with coaches, with executive coaches, 
managing under stressful. I have a lot of break liners, speakers, sometimes Don, Jake Harriman, they come and speak to our founders. Um, because I've seen so many good startups not make it because of self-inflicted leadership challenges. And so we do try to spend a lot of time on the, both those areas. Thank you, John. Um, I am going to start asking some questions from the audience now. And the first one is from John Roan, who says, what are the key markers that you look for in identifying entrepreneurs that are aligned with your values? And I think this is such a great question because people can fool us, right? Like I've mm. been fooled before, you know, when you're interviewing someone or spending like short amounts of time with someone, it, you know, you can kind of miss it. And so how do you discern whether someone is aligned with the values that you want to, um, to, to see on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I don't know, Bethany, if you've ever seen the Far Side cartoon where the woman is choosing between heaven and hell after she's died and she goes to heaven and everyone's kind of peaceful and hanging out and she goes to heaven and everyone's like partying. And it's like all our friends. So she's like, I'm, uh, I'm going to take that. And then she gets there and everyone's burning and sweating and and she's like, wait, 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 she's like, oh, and they all say, oh, we were selling. <laughs> and that's that when you're interviewing, you're, you're both selling, right? Every, so, you, yeah, you have to you have to get past the like, what's the reality? So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with founders up front on their background, their story. How did you get where you got? Like, tell me about a time, you know, you really got through adversity. Um, you, you really want to understand the why of someone. Uh, and again, I, I still get it wrong. I, I've made some, you know, awful character judgments. Uh, but I do, I do make the effort to spend a lot of time understanding the why, right? Why are you doing this? Why now? Why do you believe? Because if the motivations are, for example, monetary or ego driven, hey, I want, I really want to start a company, or hey, I really want to make a lot of money, they they never make it they, because it gets too hard at some point, and they give it up. <laughs> Um, right. So if you just, you know, with all the, you know, why, 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 right. Simon Sinek stuff like, you, yeah, that's exactly it. Right. It's like, okay, why are you doing this? And I, I now have an ability to pattern match a bit on those who have a history of perseverance, you know, of motivations that last. Uh, and frankly, a lot of that will show up and ultimately who they can hire. Right. You, you know, this you're hopelessly dependent on the team you put around you. And if you don't have a mission or a belief or like authenticity to why you're doing a startup, you're just never going to be able to get the, the highest quality people. Um, if you haven't read Shoe Dog, I, I strongly encourage all of you to read it. It's a fantastic book about the story of Nike, something you can all relate to. But Phil Knight makes a funny joke in the beginning because he's, he's an encyclopedia salesman for a while after he graduates from Stanford Business School. And, and he is, forgive my French, he's shit at it. He's really shit. Like, he, he can't sell a thing. And then he's selling his shoes out of the back of his trunk, you know, his car at high school track meets. And people just, they can't get enough of them. And he equates it all to belief. Like, he believed what you put on your shoes every day affected who you are. And people wanted some of that, right? So... When you talk to founders, you, you, you have to really kind of understand that, are they, do they have that belief? Is it authentic? You know, will they get through the hard times? So I, I tend to spend time on their personal backgrounds as much as like the insight, where do they get it? How do they get it? You know, because that tells me how they're going to perform later on. 
So um, Young has a related question, which is when you're having these conversations, what is your favorite part about chatting with entrepreneurs? You talked about values, you talked about motivation. Are those your favorite parts or is there another layer there that you always look for? Yeah, I mean, I have two hats, right? One is my the thing I get paid to do, which is make good investments. So is it a big market opportunity? Is this is this is this insight, you know, around the product, is it distinguished? Is it differentiated? Will it work? Um, can these people recruit? Is the business model make sense? Like these are the things that I do in my sleep. So I'm always wearing that hat. Is that my favorite part? No, but I'm a, I'm a huge nerd about that stuff. So I, I, I do like it. I, I like to understand it. Um, but no, my favorite part is the person. Like I, 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 wanna, I wanna like, why are you doing this? Am I gonna enjoy working with you? Right, I mean, we're gonna see a lot of each other and talk a lot. and this point in my life, I'm just, you know, I'm done with the a-holes. Like, I'm, I'm just, you know, I like conviction. I like belief. You know, if you, you lead the witness too much, you don't have a good founder, right? They need to have, you know, they're going to defy the odds. But if they have no humility, if they're not, you know, I'll, I'll ask people, Bethany, I'll say, are you coachable? I learned that from Bill Campbell. Are you coachable? A lot of people think they are, but they're not always you know, or, or the famous Bobby Knight quote, right? Like a lot of people have the will to win, but not the will to prepare to win. It's a grind. It is a grind. So I, I try to understand things in their life that demonstrate they have the grind. Um, so you work in a, in an industry where there's a lot of money. Um, there's like, and especially right now, it feels like there's just a ton of money, um, sloshing around and entrepreneurs have a choice. Um, and someone that you and I both know, Irv Grossbeck, who's, um, he's a wonderful professor at Stanford. He always says money comes with faces attached. And his point is this is a long-term relationship. And so John kind of articulated as like, am I going to want to spend time with you as an entrepreneur? You also really have to ask yourself that question. And, um, and, uh, Alex wants to know, you know, what do you feel gives you that edge with the entrepreneurs that you're also selling to, right? Like you're articulating the unusual edge, the unusual advantage, why they should choose you guys over, over other firms. Is it people skill? Like, is it your ability to connect with them? You've talked a lot about really wanting to understand who they are as people is it the quantitative aptitude? You also talked about understanding the business model, the possibility for product market fit, the size of the market. Um, where, like, what gives you an advantage in terms of, um, in terms of like how entrepreneurs see you and make that choice? What do you think gives you that edge? I have no idea. I mean, look, so here, a couple of things that come to mind. One is I'm not for everybody. I'm not, you have to know thyself, right? Like, and it, and I will tell you, it still hurts me every time I want to make an investment and I don't get the chance to do it. They pick someone else. Like I, people say, oh, it's just business. Don't take it personally. It's like, don't take it personally. <laughs> like, it's me. Like I I'm asking, like, I'm asking for your hand in a business marriage. Like, and you're telling me, no, like you want somebody else. Like, how do I not take that personally? So I take it personally, you know, but, but, you know, look, I, I view it as like, I've chosen a competitor's existence. And that's some, that means you get your heart broken sometimes because I want to care enough. I think frankly, you have to care enough 
in order to win that you're willing to put yourself out there and get your heart broken. I, I just, I believe that. So, but I have to recognize that frankly, unusual isn't always the best product for some founders. So I think when it is a fit, like when do we win? People want a team approach. They, they, they value Jody and I's in particular, our, our history. You know, we've backed almost 20 unicorns now. So, you know, one could argue we know what we're doing. Like we're nerds, we're nerds about how startups work and how they get going. And like, we study it. Like I, I created a job that I love what I do because I get to learn all the time about how startups work and how they're changing and how, how those new ones work. And I try to take all that and I try to give it to other people. But selfishly, I enjoy learning about it too. So if founders desire that, like if that, if that's a, if that product is for them, um, then we win and we're a fit. And obviously the packaging, Bethany, the way I deliver it, it's not always for everyone. I mean, like, that's what I mean by that. Like, right. Like, you know, in my house, I say toughen up, dude, a lot to my three girls, <laughs> like, because the world's not soft. I'm like, toughen up, dude, you, you, you're going to be fine. Right. And so I like when people give me feedback in a way that's, yeah, I, look, I'm human. It hurts, but, but I want it like, cause I want to get better. And so I believe that people have their, my best interests at heart. Like I, I go into relationships with that. Now, if they screw you over, okay, shame on me if I keep going back and getting burnt. But like, I look for founders who want that same, you want to build a billion dollar company? I can help you. I, I care about you becoming not just a good business person, but a good leader, a good, like become the person you're meant to be. If you succeed, it's not going to change my life anymore. I'd rather give more money to break line. <laughs> but but I, I'm here to win because I like to win and I want to win for our LPs. And so that's for some people and it's not for others. And I, I hopelessly want it to be for everyone, <laughs> um, but it isn't. And so I still get my heart broken sometimes. I mean, this is just so much fun for me to hear about. And I want to give you all some more like inside baseball here. Um, but I also, I've gotten so much more comfortable as I've sort of progressed through my career saying, Hey, you don't like it. Like the exit is over there. Totally fine. Like we can, you know, <laughs> we can split up amicably, but there's the door. Um, and it's kind of one of the joys of, of, um, getting a little older, getting a little bit more perspective, but John, in the way that you describe the coaching that you all provide, it reminds me of a mentor that we share and that's Andy Ratcliffe, who you referred to earlier in the conversation. Um, when Kenny interviewed me for the speaker series, I talked about, um, Andy's sort of tough love approach and, why it hurts, but also why it's so important. And, and the fact that it can hurt and also land because it's coming from such a great place. Will you talk a little bit about your relationship with Andy and whether or not that's influenced how you coach and mentor other people? Yeah, yeah, to, maybe to my detriment, I don't know. I mean, you know, because my dad got sick, I, I ended up looking to coaches, priests, like other people in my life as I grew up, you know, was, was an obnoxious teenager uh, to play that father figure role. And so Andy has been that for me for 20 years in the, in my professional career. Um, and he reminds me of like my, you know, freshman football coach who was like, good news, you're slow and you're short. <laughs> yeah. So 
like Andy's not afraid to tell me like exactly where I'm screwing up. Uh, and I don't, it's, you know, of course it's, it's not always easy to hear, but I think true friends are the ones who tell you that stuff. Right. Um, because you know, I, I believe Andy wants me to succeed. Right. And like Andy needs money, like a hole in the head. Like, right. He, he's not doing it because there's something in it for him. Never has been, you know, Andy, Andy likes to help people who want to be helped um, and who aren't afraid of his direct, you know, radical candor. Right? A lot of people like to give radical candor. Not a lot of people like to receive radical candor, I, I find. So, you know, look, Andy's been that guy for me. And I, I learned a long time ago to take what the coach is saying apart from how it's being said because i know if the coach didn't care or didn't think i could do something with it they wouldn't even bother so so andy talks to me in a way that you know, look he gives he, these days he gives me a few more attaboys bethany than he used to but but mostly it's constructive criticism <laughs> but i seek it out like i keep calling him right and yeah i get 10 minutes at the foot of the master and i and i will ask and and i don't I don't need him to blow sunshine up my butt. You know, I need him to tell me like, where can I get better? So I, I look forward to those conversations. Chris has a question. Um, he's asking, could you talk to us about one of the most unusual ideas you've invested in and how that panned out? Oh boy. Well, usually the super unusual ones don't pan out. So, <laughs> and I, and I have lots of those. Uh, it's, I prefer to tell the, so, I'll give you a good one. So some of you, I'll give you the punchline first. Pinterest. Pinterest, where Don ended up being the COO. So that we can connect all these dots. So I had Ben Silverman as, as part of like a program that I ran years ago uh, for summer, you know, it was basically for students in the summer who wanted to try entrepreneurship. And he, he had the goofiest idea around some medical device. And it, it, it totally didn't work. And so then he, he moved home, like he moved home with his mom, like, like all champions do when they're 25 or whatever. And she was a scrapbooker, like big time. Like, I don't, some of you may not even know what that is, but like people love to cut out and save memories and like create like closets full of these scrapbooks. And he was like, mom, this is batshit. Like you, you know, I'm sure he said it in a nicer way, but th this, this should be done digitally. Like you can do this with a much better product. So I remember he came back and talked to me about it. And I was like, dude, you're talking to the wrong. I'm not, I don't know much about scrapbooks. Like I, I, I've never used one. I, I, you know, I'm left-handed. I can't even cut. Like I, the scissors always mess me up. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a disaster here on this. Um, but you're awesome. So I'll give you some money and I, you know, good luck. And it worked out, it worked out great, uh, obviously. So digital scrapbooks, if you had asked me whatever, 11 years ago, if I would invest in digital scrapbooks, I'm pretty sure I would have told you hundred percent. No. That is so hilarious. I love your comment. I can't even cut. I can't. I've sucked at cutting my whole <laughs> life. It's, it's, it's really a few things. People, it's something a few people know, but it's totally true. Um, Angel says left-handed, right-minded. Um, okay. Eric has a question for you and he says, what is your take on SPACs? Are they truly win-win 
for investors and companies and are they here to stay? And in your answer, can you explain what a SPAC is? Yes, yes, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably better than 99% of the population anyway. <laughs> uh, special Purpose Acquisition Company, SPAC, SPAC. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but that's what I think it stands for. And so what it, what it is, is uh, it, it's not a new concept, just to be clear. Like they existed a long time ago and, um, and I was taught they were a gimmick. And the reason they're a gimmick is uh, a SPAC is already a public entity, is the idea. So it trades publicly, but there's no company there. It's a, what people call a shell except for it has a whole bunch of money. So investors put a whole bunch of money, hundreds of millions of dollars into a SPAC. They call it a blank check. But the reason it's blank is because you haven't made it out to someone yet. And what they do is they go and they find a private company and they essentially merge. So the private company gets all this money, it gets a capital infusion. So its balance sheet is now boistered. And it has a public stock that people can buy and sell. So there's liquidity, which is, which is adva an advantage. What does the SPAC get? Well, it gets a business. <laughs> and the business in theory with the money will improve and grow and hence so will the share price or share value of, those, of the stock. Um, are they here to stay? Whew. You know, you should ask Jamath. Jamath is the SPAC man, just ask him. and. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think I think companies go public for a reason when they're ready. SPACs kind of force the issue. And a lot of times these companies aren't quite ready. But sometimes companies that are ready don't go public for various reasons. They don't want the scrutiny of being public. Um, and so this is a way to bypass the, you know, the unfortunate like old boys network of the investment banking process, which is a little bit of highway robbery in my mind. You know, if you want to read about that, read anything Bill Gurley writes. Uh, I see both sides. I, I, I can honestly see your argue, argument from both sides. I think, I think when they, why they wouldn't last is because too many not ready to be public companies are spacked. And then the investors get burned. A bit like the dot-com crash, bunch of companies went public they weren't ready to go public. Those stocks plummeted. Investors get you know burned by that, which means they don't want to invest in more SPACs. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if SPACs do well, like if the whole model works, it's arguably better for startups and investors than the traditional banking process through IPO. Maybe they'll maybe they'll stay, Bethany. Maybe, maybe it will be a, a direct listings, IPOs, and SPACs will all be forms of uh, being getting public that are available now to startups going forward, as opposed to the only way in the past, which is really through the big banks. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. I think we have time for one last question. Rionis is a Greek name, is it not? <laughs> it is, yes, it is. And you compare entrepreneurs or you have compared them to heroes in Greek mythology. Can you talk to us about the parallels that you oh, see? Oh boy, you, say, you look at that, you saved my favorite. That, that's really sweet of you. Um, okay. So if you haven't read Plutarch's lives, anyone read Plutarch's lives? It's a, maybe in high school, someone made you read it. Uh, okay. Or Joseph Campbell hero has a thousand faces. Oh my God. You got to read it. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Okay. So, but here's the thing, all, all Greek stories, all Greek mythology 
it's the point is it's the same damn story <laughs> every time like right there's a hero hero encounter think of odysseus or if you like hero encounters some bad world some alternative universe some bad juju and then they have to go fix it right and they go on a journey and it's usually a journey of self-discovery and a journey so founders are going on a journey right and so but but heroes here's the thing heroes usually have something about them that's godly right they have some superpower that all the stories are like this but if you if you if you double click and i would encourage you to do this if you double click on the greek heroes it's actually their humanity that makes them heroes Here, hero by the way doesn't mean badass it means protector that's the literal translation and 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 so they all have a sidekick and what does the sidekick do right Odysseus said Pericles, even, even Superman had Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> All our stories are like this, but the, the sidekick reminds them of their humanity. And it's, it's being human, right? It's being vulnerable. It's, it's, it's all about that, that makes you the hero, that connects you to people. It ultimately is why they succeed. So we tell all the founders, it's not your superpower that will help you ultimately be the, the leader and person you're supposed to become. It's actually the humanity. It's connecting with people. It's being vulnerable, right? And so, yes, you are the hero of your story, but don't get confused. That doesn't mean you're, you know, you're Johnny Tough Guy. It, it, it means that you're actually really, you connect with people and that's what's inspiring. And that's what will lead your team to success. So that's why I use the, by the way, I've only been to Greece once and they <laughs> laughed at me. They're like, do you speak any Greek? I'm like, zero. Like my dad spoke no Greek, the, the last name stuck. And oh, by the way, uh, Bethany, you'll like this. So Vrionis, if you go, so I got a taxi cab once and the guy goes, are you related to Omer Vrionis? I'm like, I have no idea, dude. And he goes, oh, he was a butcher. He was like the Turkish butcher who like fought against the Greek army and like annihilated. I'm like, I hope not. I have no idea. Um, so that's all, that one. <laughs> that's all I know about my Greek, my Greek history. What a treat to spend the last hour with you and with our whole community. Thank you everyone for, for coming. John, thank you so much for coming and sharing these stories. It's just such a special moment to share with you and always such a treat to see you. Well, I love you and I love your Oprah, you know, and uh, the fact that people would listen to me for an hour is ridiculous. So I, I, am, I, hope, I, I hope you walk away as something helpful and I'm grateful for the time. We were delighted to have you. Thanks so much. Have a great evening. Thanks everybody for coming. We'll see you soon. Bye yeah. all. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I'll tell you what, if you enjoy what you've heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. So um, please join us again next Tuesday here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.